episode of On the Record with your hosts, Kimberly Lyons and Brandon Dyer. As always, the Student Spin Podcast is a sister media to the Six Mile Post newspaper at Georgia Highlands College in Rome, Georgia. The views in this podcast do not represent those of the Six Mile Post or Georgia Highlands College. We have with us today, Mr. Harold Campbell. He has written a book called Crazy People Like Us, and we are going to learn all about his life. Thank you for having me. Welcome. You want to start off by telling us a little bit about your upbringing? Sure. Um, I was born here in Rome way back when at Floyd Hospital, when it was a lot smaller than it is now. I started school in Dalton. My father was transferred, got a job there. And so I was there from first grade toward the end of fifth grade. Then my father was working at that time in Chattanooga, he was driving every afternoon from Dalton to Chattanooga, which back then traffic wasn't so bad. I can't imagine doing that today. No. I don't think you would. Anybody <laughs> in their right mind would. But Absolutely anyway, not. even back then, he thought this is too much. So we found a house and well, my parents found a house in Port Oglethorpe, which mm. is like just inside the Georgia line next to Chickamauga Battlefield. Yeah. So I went. From fifth grade through high school there, graduated from Lakeview, Fort Oglethorpe High School. Go Warriors. Not very far, but go Warriors. <laughs> uh, then my plan was go to UGA, major in journalism. But I thought, right. well, to save money, even back then, even though college was a lot cheaper back then, our family didn't have a lot of money. So my mother's mother lived here in Rome. So back then it was called Floyd Junior College. I decided to move in with my grandmother, which she loved, of course. And so I went to Floyd Junior uh, for two years, got my associate's degree in journalism in 1978, if you really want to know. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. A year after I was born. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. Uh, anytime. <laughs> well, my my father's job company was headquartered in Kansas City area in a suburb on the Kansas side, kind of like Marietta is to Atlanta. And so in the first of November of my sophomore year at Boy Junior, they tell him be in Kansas City by Thanksgiving if you want your job. <laughs> so wow. he loaded up his little VW bug and headed out to Kansas City and started working at the headquarters there. And then my my mother and my brother and sister, who I'm the oldest, and Christmas break, they moved out Kansas City. And so I was back here with my grandmother until graduation in June. Well, I, in the meantime, I thought about, well, I've planned about going to UGA, but then I thought, well, Kansas isn't exactly the vacation land, but I'm that type of person. I like to maybe live in different places, experience different things. And right. the University of Kansas has still has one of the top journalism schools in the country. So I applied there, got accepted. Right, right after I got my, my degree here, we headed back. Thank you. Well, that my parents came down and family came down for the graduation. Right after that, we loaded the car with my little stuff and moved out. I uh, finished my last two years at KU, the NCAA men's basketball champions. Go Rock Chalk Jayhawk. So, yeah, that's the Reader's Digest version of <laughs> my upbringing. So what brought you to the decision to become a Christian in college? You know, growing up here is the Bible Belt mm -hmm. and you hear so much. And I remember hearing a lot about the act of getting saved and then going to heaven and 
I could understand this was like in the 60s mm-hmm. when I was a kid. I could understand this. The people saying this had grown up during the Depression, during World War II, all that mess. And so they were, they'd, and a lot of them worked like in the cotton mills, you know, blue collar kind of work. And they were looking for like their eternal reward, for their eternal vacation. That wasn't me. You know, I was, I remember one Sunday in the pew, I wasn't any more than six or seven, maybe eight. And I thought, well, let's say you're saved when you're 10. Of course, back then I thought 60 was ancient. Now it's not too, much, it's not too bad. But I thought, well, let's say you don't die until you're 60 or 70. What are you supposed to do in between? And I never really got an answer. And then I got to the University of Kansas, especially. And I did have a professor at Floyd Junior College who was very instrumental, James Cook. Now, I'm a history geek. If if journalism hadn't worked out, being a history teacher was going to be my number two. And he was a Christian. And to be honest with you, when I was growing up, I was kind of a nerd. I mean, people thought I was a Christian just because I was a goody-goody, I guess. You were nice. And I'm like, well, no. But I remember one time in a lecture at Floyd Jr., he was talking about some of the American philosophers like Emerson, Thoreau. And he said something that stuck with me. He said, well, these are nice people, but they weren't Christians. And okay, the Hollywood story would have been I would have changed right then. The reality was it just kind of stuck in my mind. And then I, I got to KU. University of Kansas. I can't really say KU here because they don't know what I'm talking about. But uh, (laughs) when I got to University of Kansas, one of the things they really taught us, stressed us back then was all the world needs to improve is just more education, more communication. And I thought, yeah, I'm I'm all for education. Believe me, 100%. But then I got to the big college and I see these people with masters and doctorates and they're out partying, drinking, getting drunk, taking drugs. Their lives are a mess. And I'm like, logically, I thought, well, that an education can't be the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, well, what happened was between my junior and senior year at at KU that I had a summer internship at the newspaper in beautiful Sweetwater, Texas. And it's one of those summer internship things you probably know about. It was three months, very practical experience with very little pay, but it was, but I wouldn't trade that experience now for anything because I'd always been really self-sufficient kind of person, you know, and this was the first time I'd ever really been it was like 600 miles, I think, from Sweetwater to back in Kansas City where my parents were. I remember I hadn't been there for a week or two. And I was got to the point where I remember I was lying in, on my bed in my dusty, hot trailer. But I just thought, you know, I can't make this. I'm, I'm not as self-sufficient as I think I am. And so I just said, Lord, here I am. And uh, that was kind of how it started. And when did you know you wanted to pursue journalism as a career? Oh, way back. I would say by the time, probably by the time I was in fifth grade. Now, my big, my big choice was broadcast or print. Actually, my first, first 
thing I wanted, I kind of was interested in. I wanted to be the play-by-play broadcaster of some major league or some professional sports team. That's what I wanted to be when I was a kid. Yeah, Look at you. I wanted to be that guy that was and talking over the game. Yeah. <laughs> and so sometimes, yeah, I'd, I'd be at a game and I would do the broadcasting just to myself or something just to practice it. Well, it got to the point where I decided that I can write better than I can talk. So that's how it really just made me get into the newspaper side of things. I had teachers back in elementary school says, Harold, you're a good writer. Keep writing. Mm -hmm. And I even remember the first time I knew I wanted to be a writer was in second grade. And, you know, back then you had the spelling words every week. Mm -hmm. And one week the the teacher wanted us to write a story using our spelling words for that week. I thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. It was fun. But yeah, that's kind of when. And so it's just one of those things that I feel like I'm not doing what I'm not supposed to do if I'm not writing. I know you'll ask me later probably why the book. And that's that's why I wrote the book is because I thought I had a story that needed to be told. Right. So what did you enjoy most about being a journalist? A couple of things. First was meeting lots of people. You get to meet all kinds of people in this job. Somebody asked me, what's the most famous person I've ever met as a journalist or interviewed? I'd say Bob Dole was the one when I was out in Kansas. Uh, I had a couple of interviews with him when he would come through the town and give press conferences or something, mainly politicians, because politics was a lot of what I covered as a reporter. And a lot of people who would have been famous in Kansas, you'd have no idea, or even older people. (laughs) I did get to meet uh, George McGovern once when I was in South Dakota. The other thing is that, well, journalism has changed a lot. Brandon and I were talking about this the other day, that it's the world is so different now than when I was starting. Um, When I was starting, it wasn't like a corporate job. Because I knew I would be bored stiff if I had a nine to five job pushing a pencil. And back then it was like, yeah, you could get out of the office. They didn't care where you were as long as you got your story done on time. And if you came back in less than an hour, he would be the managing editor be mad at you. Because he's like, you didn't spend enough time. Now it's based on phone calls. (laughs) Yeah, you have to because there's no other time or or emails. Yeah. And so it's like there's no, you don't have enough time. And the other thing is staffs were much bigger. This this would have been the late 70s, early 80s, into the 90s. They started really downsizing in the late 80s. But when I started, what I consider my best favorite job, (laughs) there were 17 in the newsroom. Oh, my goodness. And that was full full and part-time. Even big city newspapers, (laughs) bigger city newspapers don't even have close to that. So we were able to focus on a beat. At the time I left newspaper work, I was doing the work that three or four people would have done when I started. And I felt really frustrated because I knew I wasn't doing as good of a job as I could because I just didn't have time. Mm -hmm. And I'd leave meetings with unanswered questions that I didn't have time to follow up on, like for the next day or something. And and that's, that's been one of the big changes I've noticed with the new online journalism is I read stories all the time that sound very interesting, but then I never hear about it again. Yeah. And so like, what happened? Or there's no meat to them. Exactly. There's no, it's just fluff. Yeah. I see there's, there's a lot of young reporters who seem to just want to write opinion pieces. And I see very few who really know how to really just cover a basic news story. And it's really frustrating because really to write a good opinion piece is a lot harder than writing a 
basic news story because you got to get all the details and all the facts to back up what you're saying. You just can't say something and then say, well, this is what I say. So it has oh, to be but true. They do. Um, so or even you know. with the six mile post, we try to encourage people to write the opinion pieces. Hey, go out, find out what other people around you kind of yeah. think about it yeah. and kind of build an argument off of that. Yeah. That's yeah. still, that's a, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Well, I think the craziest thing to me nowadays in the news is you turn on the TV and there's, you can tell there's a Republican leaning mm-hmm. and there's a, it did not used to be like that when I was growing up. It was very factual. It was very, nobody gave their opinion. Yeah. Nobody. And that's all I see now is opinion. And it's very, mm-hmm. I can understand why people find it so mm-hmm. confusing and difficult mm-hmm. to even come to their own opinion because yeah. they don't actually have solid facts. Exactly. They have a lot of semi-fact yeah. opinions right. that have been mixed together. Yeah. I think a lot of that goes back to the fairness doctrine mm-hmm. that, you know, when I was a kid, let's say if a television station gave an on-air editorial by the station manager at the end, they would always say people with opposing views can call our station at blah, blah, blah for equal time. Yeah. No more. The options were kind of limited. You had three networks, PBS, radio, uh, back when it still had real news and magazines. That was about three new and your daily newspaper. Mm-hmm. That was about it. Today, people start with an idea and they can find some blogger or some you know, podcaster somewhere who agrees with them. And they will say, see, he, he or she agrees with me. Mm-hmm. It's like they start with the opinion and find something to back it up. It was exactly. a lot harder to do that yes. years ago. Okay, so tell us a bit about how you and Nadia met. Okay, that's interesting. That's more interesting than <laughs> <laughs> going on about journalistic and journalism. <laughs> uh, I had been divorced before, and it had been many years, so I'd kind of got to the point where I just thought, you know, I'm probably never going to get married again. No big deal. You yeah. know, life will go on. Well... I happened to go online and yeah, it was actually christianpinpals.com. It doesn't exist anymore because I imagine Facebook and everything rented out of business. This would have been the, the beginning oh, version of Christian Mingle. I'm just kidding. No, it was, it was <laughs> what you did was you could just say you wanted a pen pal. Yeah. It wasn't you know, set up as mm-hmm. primarily a dating thing. And so you could click on countries and find a pen pal yeah. country. And so actually one of the first I clicked on was from Nepal mm-hmm. and it was a Nepalese guy who actually was a Christian journalist himself mm-hmm. in Nepal. And he and I became friends we still communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. And he laid not long after that, he and his wife moved to New York City and they're involved with a ministry to Nepalese immigrants mm-hmm. in the New York City area. Well, right after that, I clicked, I decided, oh, there's Russia. And I remember back when I was growing up in the Cold War that it was pretty impossible yeah. for an average American to have any communication with an average Russian. I think for us, it wouldn't have been so hard, but the Soviet government limited what Soviet citizens could communicate with foreigners. Right. Right. Because they wanted to make sure you didn't say anything improper or you didn't hear anything improper. Mm -hmm. Or if you heard anything improper, you were so indoctrinated, you just let it go through. Yeah. So I thought that's fine. I wouldn't mind having a Russian pen pal, email pen pal. So I clicked and, and she was dressed modestly and she had just a friendly looking face. I thought, why not? You know, so I just sent her a little email and just 
three or four sentences and introduced myself, said who I was, what I did. I'd like to hear from you, blah, blah, blah. Tell me a little bit about yourself. And so she mailed me right back. And well, later, but a few hours later. <laughs> but uh, the interesting thing was she literally lived in Siberia and I was oh. still in Kansas at the time. And if you took a globe, you took a marker and you drew north to the North Pole and then back on the other side, you'd end up pretty close to where she was living then. So it was like an 11 hour time difference. And so to make a long story short, we hit it off because we had a lot of similar values and things. And there were, we were we had some differences, but they like complemented each other kind of thing. And so that's how we met. One thing led to another. So when did you first begin to think about moving to Russia? And was that a difficult decision? I'd always thought I would move to another country, at least temporarily. Mm-hmm. And, but I didn't really think about Russia uh, <laughs> until I met Nadia. I'd always been interested, very interested in Russia because of the Cold War. Growing up then, I've always been interested in politics, current yeah. events, international relations kind of thing. So when I met Nadia, it was very interesting because I got to hear what life was like you know, when I was growing up on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And so we, after we decided that we were, we were for each other and after we did decided that, then we decided where where are we actually going to have the wedding? Mm -hmm. And so strangely enough, the paperwork for her to get married here was more than the paperwork for me to get married in St. Petersburg, Russia, which is very unusual. And so one of the things I thought about before was that I could see the direction journalism and newspaper work was going. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. I thought, what else can I do? And I thought I've always enjoyed helping people from other countries with their English. And so I thought, well, maybe I could get a master's in English and get ESL certification. But then I thought again and thought, well, it's going to take two or three years. And probably this would have been 10 years, more than 10 years ago, 20 or $30,000 to do. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go to that much in debt at that point in my life. And so I just kind of, well, okay. And then I met Nadia and she was very fluent in English and she had been taught English herself. She was one of the best. She, anything good I learned about teaching English, I learned from her. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, I told her about my idea and she goes, Harold, you don't have to do that. She said, there's a big demand for certified native speaker English teachers here in St. Petersburg. And she said, with your bachelor, with your degree in journalism, you can get an online certification as a teacher of English as a foreign language for a fraction of the cost of going back to university. So I, and so I got my certification for TEFL. And at the same time, I was thinking, okay, it's one of those things that if I turn this down now, I don't want to wait 10 or 20 years and think, well, I could have done that then. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I decided, okay, it's an adventure. Life is an adventure. And Nadia was so for me, you know, and everything. And so all of that together. So I thought, well, let's, let's try it. And I always did have that backup that if it doesn't work out, I can get a tick return ticket. Mm-hmm. So I didn't need it after all, but uh, nice. And now what was the biggest culture shock once you moved to Russia? Oh, there are a lot of them. <laughs> uh, I went through a lot of culture shock at the beginning. 
about Russianness. Um, as an American, especially someone who grew up in Georgia, then lived in the Midwest, there's a lot of similarities between the South and the Midwest. And then to go to St. Petersburg, Russia was totally different because in their, in their, in our culture, we can walk down the sidewalk and we can say hi, hello to someone just by smiling. You don't have to say a thing. You just understand the smile. And if you don't smile, you think, well, what's wrong with them? You know, what's, they're kind of snobby, aren't they? Or they're, why are they so upset, uptight? In big city Russia, it's almost the opposite. That if you smile at somebody and they don't know you, they're insulted. So that's why you don't see a lot of Russians mm-hmm. smiling. There's a, a proverb in Russian that anyone who smiles without a reason is crazy. Some have gone far enough to say anybody who smiles is crazy. Because I remember Nadia one time, she usually taught kids. So some of her kids one time asked her, why do Americans smile all the time? And I told her, that's just our culture. Now, on the other hand, when you become friends with a Russian, you're their friend for life. The entryway to being a friend with a Russian is a little harder but once you're their friend, oh, yeah, if you ask a Russian, how are they doing? That's another thing. <laughs> when we ask, how are, how, how are you doing? A lot of Americans don't really want to know how you're doing. <laughs> you're just saying yeah, that. You're saying it out of politeness. If you ask a Russian how they're doing, they'll tell you how are they doing <laughs> in minute detail. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's once you become their friend, yeah, you, it's very deep. Yeah. Um, other things, there's just a lot of bureaucracy, paperwork. Uh, I have a good friend who actually was a missionary in Quebec and then France. And he was talking about how the French, one time on Facebook, he was talking about how the French invented bureaucracy. And so I emailed him. I said, well, the French may have invented bureaucracy, but Russians made it an artwork. (laughs) They perfected it. So that was the bureaucracy. Red tape was big. Uh, just a lot of minor little things to get used to. Um, but then, strangely enough, the India thing came. And we, we went to India to teach English for five months in a couple of orf- Christian orphanages there. But when I got to India, a lot of my Russian... <laughs> My Russian went away. You know, it's kind of like, well, culture shock. I'm like, well, compared to India, this isn't so different. <laughs> because, yeah, India, I didn't really have the culture shock as much as just getting used to life. Here. Yeah. Well, my uncle who lived in Cedartown, he was going deaf, basically blind and deaf. And so even before I left Russia, he told my dad, well, if Harold wants to, he can come to Cedartown where he lived and move in with me and help me. And I, that's when I decided to come back to Cedartown and help my uncle. And uh, well, after about three months here, I happened to find the job here at Georgia Highlands. They were looking for a writing tutor. So I came here and interviewed and it looked almost like a totally new place for me. And so I interviewed and you know, pretty much was hired the next day officially. And so I just liked coming back because I feel like I can, I can give back a little bit. And what motivated you to write crazy people like us? 
Okay, that's a good question. What motivated me was <laughs> I thought it had a message that could apply to a lot of people. And it's something I just needed to get off my chest too. Now, how it started was even before, even while I was still in Russia, some friends would, I would share observations and things on my Facebook page and everything. And, and sometimes some of my friends would say, you're going to write a book about this, aren't you? I said, well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> But then it was kind of like, it really wasn't that exciting, you know? There really wasn't a hook to it. Yeah. It was just kind of like a blog. When I was in India, it felt like I was in a spy movie or a spy story. Uh So I started writing it like a fictionalized account and tried to do it like an espionage story. That was okay. But the problem was the plot was overshadowing the message I really wanted to get out. And so I felt like this isn't really what I want to write, you know? Yeah. And so I, I was to that point, even when I got back here to Georgia, I was still trying to write the fictionalized. And I thought, no, I can't do that. So I thought I really need, what I really need to do is do a memoir, what actually happened. And so this would have been four years ago. My grief process has a lot to do with this. I'd start writing and I might get a page written, maybe the first sentence, first line on the second page. And I just couldn't do it anymore. It's because of memories. And I just kind of stopped for a while. Then I was part of, this is also in the book, I was part of this grief share group where I was able to share with other people going through similar things. And I started getting a lot stronger. And so I finally, when we went into a lockdown, you know, two years ago, we went to lockdown and Well, a lot of people were saying, well, just take care of yourself. Take it easy. I thought, no, this is my time to write. And so, yeah, I started writing and I basically wrote. I didn't really care about format. I didn't care about literary anything. I just wanted to get down on paper. This was my experience. And I was basically answering questions that people had had asked me. And so I made just a PDF. It was like 70 something pages. And I just sent it to friends and asked, what do you think? Everybody loved it. They said, you need to publish this. And I knew that it really wasn't publishable as it was. So I thought, well, I need to redo it. And so I started looking to publishers and it was hard to find something that would be interested in this. Well, then I got to the point where I was almost to give up. I like to do something. Well, then I happened to see something online about Lazarus Tribe Media here in Rome. And it seemed to fit because they were looking for new authors, new Christian authors who were maybe couldn't get published anywhere else with a big traditional publishing house. And so I thought, why not? Wouldn't hurt to call the email. And so uh, Rachel answered and said she'd be very interested. So we met together. I told her about what I was writing. She was very interested. So all of that summer, I basically, she, we were going through what should a memoir be? I just asked her, what do I need to do to make this publishable? And she said, the more vulnerable you are, the more you're going to help other people. I put things in the book that I never told anyone before, any human being before. That was all, all last summer. I've basically rewrote the book in two months, in June and July of last year. And then we went through the publishing part in the summer and early fall. Then in December, it was published. So what was the publishing process like? Well, this is the first time I've ever been through it. So <laughs> um, I would say what Rachel said was that it's her publishing company is kind of a hybrid. It's not total self-published. It's not total traditional published mm-hmm. either. I can veto any editing, but she also, 
She also said I had the cleanest copy of anybody who's ever. <laughs> she said her editing was only, she only edited at like five or 10% of what yeah. she normally had to. Yeah. I said, that's because I'm a journalist. I have to write clean copy the first time. <laughs> so compose at the keyboard, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I didn't have to that to worry about as much. She really helped me mostly with the developmental process. Like if I should ask me, what do you want to say in this book? And what are the main points you want to make? And then she'd go deeper even. And so, yeah, she was pretty tough at the beginning. <laughs> so that was good because yeah. it helped me clarify what I really wanted to say. Yeah. And, uh, so, yeah, after that, it was just a matter of time waiting. I hurry the hurry up and wait <laughs> process. And, uh, yeah. and then once it's published, yeah, it's... Uh, I really don't know how well I'm doing because I've never done this before, but Rachel says I'm doing great. So, <laughs> so would you do it over again if you have the chance? To write the book? Mm -hmm. well, to sure. write the book and publish it? And oh, yeah. Well, people, well, I, I say in the book, even in the end, where uh, people have asked me, would, if you knew, you knew Dottie was going to die, would you still go to Russia? I'd say, sure. Yes, because I had experiences that nobody else could have. And like now with the situation in Ukraine and Russia, with Russia, it gives me some insight that mm -hmm. a lot of Americans don't have. As I've seen this happen, I've seen this train wreck from for the last four years yeah. or even longer, eight years now. I even say in the book that I wish there was a law, especially for American Christians, that you must live two years in another country, not another part of the United States, but another country. To see, yeah, not from the vantage point of, oh, we have it so lucky here, but from the vantage point of, well, maybe they do some things right here. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can learn from them right. uh, and broaden our own horizons. So, yeah, I definitely would do it over again. What advice would you give to students interested in writing a book? I would say a lot of advice I give it would be the same advice I give to a lot of students when they come in for help with their essay is be specific. Take good notes. And I, I try to tell this to the young journalists, be observant, ask questions and work out the clunkiness. Don't be too wordy. Transitions are your friend. Just basic things like that. So do you have any plans to write more books in the future? That's a good question. I ask myself that. Okay. I'm like, some days, yes. Some days, I don't know. I would say the writing process. Yeah, I can do write another book. I don't know if I want to go through the publishing process. <laughs> um, not that it was bad. It's just kind of like it's a long, hard process. Yeah. So you got to really be sold on your own book yeah. to really go through it. So, yeah. yeah, that would be my hesitation. And what do you enjoy most about your life right now? I like my life now because I have flexibility. As I have two part-time jobs. I have the part-time job here is tutor, writing, history tutor. My other part-time job is I, I'm an online English tutor with this particular company that uh, people from other countries get on for instruction. And I like to get to meet new people. Um, I feel like I'm helping people. I'd even like to do more. And you have any final thoughts or advice you'd like to give our listeners? Good question. I would just say, again, be observant. Uh, that's one of the ideas that Rachel and I talked about when we were planning the actual book. It seems like a lot of people nowadays aren't really observant or curious about other places or other peoples. We're kind of becoming insulated, tribal. 
I would say that's absolutely wrong, that we should be learning about other people and be curious. Ask why, ask how, ask who, ask what. That is one of the frustrations I've had with tutoring some students is I'll ask them, well, what do you mean by that? I don't know. What do you have? What facts do you have to back up the statement? So you'll be curious, be observant. Yeah. Be a student. Yeah. Like being a student is a lifetime thing. It doesn't end with college. Lifelong learner. So yeah, be a lifelong learner, lifelong observer. Thank you so much for joining us well, today. We have thoroughly me. enjoyed talking with you. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it too. So. <laughs> and we hope your book does really, really well. well Remember, you. this is Crazy People Like Us by Harold Campbell. And it's available on Amazon. Yes, and absolutely. And at the uh, publisher's website, Lazarus, L-A-Z-A-R-U-S, Tribe, T-R-I-B-E, Media, all one word, dot com. <laughs>